0: Chapter twenty one of the Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Wife of the Secretary of State by Ella Middleton Tybout. Chapter twenty one. It was New Year's Day, and official Washington was astir early for the diplomatic corps and officers of the Army and Navy must pay their respects to the President, as well as test the contents of various hospitable punch-bowls later on, according to long-established custom. So the city was gay with cocked hats and brass buttons, and the small boys upon the curbstones all determined upon a military career, composed of glory and gold lace. The Honorable Charles Rivers, breakfasted at the Metropolitan Club, read the morning paper, and considered how best to dispose of the hours intervening before any social obligations claimed his attention. He was well known to be an economist in time, and liked to employ every minute profitably. He looked over his mail carefully, and was surprised not to see a penitent little note from his fiancée. He did indeed receive a missive, small, perfumed, and apparently interesting, for he read it twice before relegating it to the waste-basket, but it was not the one for which he waited. Poor little thing, he reflected as he buttoned up his overcoat. It is a dull life for her. I'll drop in for a while this morning. As he bent his steps among the respectable thoroughfares frequented by the shabby genteel, he reviewed the events of the preceding evening, and was astounded to find himself decidedly apprehensive, lest he should not have an opportunity to return to its legitimate owner, the ring now snugly ensconced in his waistcoat pocket, and as he ascended the steps of the most dingy house in the square, he was conscious of a feeling of resentment against David Lee, nearly akin to jealousy, a sensation to which the member of Congress had hitherto believed himself immune. "'What a pretty spitfire she looked!' he remarked aloud, as he pulled the bell and inquired for Miss Gray." Christine was in her third floor back, improving the opportunity offered her by a legal holiday to perform the mysterious rite dear to most women known as Fixing Up the Top Drawer. A heterogeneous collection of treasures was heaped beside the bureau, and Christine herself sat upon the floor, surrounded by bits of ribbon, soiled gloves, faded flowers, and the various trifles accumulated by girls in all stations of life. She had paused in her researches, however, and was gazing with a puzzled expression at a long, sealed envelope just unearthed from beneath a pile of handkerchiefs. "'Where did I get it?' she remarked, turning it over curiously. "'Where in the world did I get it?' The one word indistinctly written in pencil afforded no clue, so, after hesitating a moment, she broke the seal and drew out the enclosure. "'Department of State. Confidential,' she read aloud, then paused suddenly." and turned over the papers with a troubled face. Christine had been employed by the government long enough to realize that a document so labeled had no legal right in her top bureau drawer. So she rested her chin in her hand, and looked at the papers very much as she might have regarded any unwelcome black spider. I know, she exclaimed suddenly. I know. It was Mr. Mark's, the ossification papers and the white hyacinths. I remember all about it but how did he—and again the chin went down into the hand. It was at this juncture Mr. Rivers was announced by the slipshod maid, who looked at her with an ill-concealed curiosity, of which Christine was entirely unconscious. With an exclamation of relief, she gathered the papers together, thrust the envelope into the bosom of her shirt-waist, and ran downstairs. The member of Congress listened patiently to the confused account of the white hyacinths, tiresome young men, and official papers, into which she launched as soon as possible, ending with the lucid remark. And when I heard you were here I was so delighted, for I knew you could tell me what to do with them. Perhaps, he suggested at last, if you would let me look at them, or at least tell me what they are about, I might be able to be of some assistance. Why, she said, producing the long envelope, it's awfully funny— but do you remember the word on the scrap of paper we found in the octagon house roostchuke i think or something like that well it's about that i mean the papers are about roostchuke whatever that is let me see them said rivers quickly his manner alert and interested with growing astonishment he took them to the window read them slowly returned them to their envelope and put it carefully in his pocket now he said quietly Tell me about it all over again. And Christine repeated her story, adding anxiously, And what had I better do about it? I feel dreadfully worried. He laughed carelessly, and seated himself on the sofa beside her. Don't worry, he said. It brings wrinkles. You need not give the subject another thought. But it is fortunate you happened to give the papers to me. Of course, I shall simply return them to the State Department, and there the matter will end." but don't accept any more presents from this peculiar young man without looking at them. It would be interesting to know where he got them, and why. Well, replied Christine, dimpling suddenly, you can ask him. I expect him here this morning. By the way, he interrupted hastily, don't mention the papers to him. I do not think it would be wise to agitate the subject, especially as he has apparently forgotten it. But, objected Christine, I want to ask him where he got them. Much better let the whole thing drop and forget it. Now let us talk about something more interesting. Yourself, for instance. Have you recovered from your fright? I reproach myself for leaving you alone, even for a few moments. But I am interested in old houses and wanted to explore. Would you trust yourself to me again? Yes, said the girl shyly. Anywhere. But, she added with a little shiver, it was not imagination— I did hear that sigh and it was heartrending sometime i'm going there to listen for it meanwhile i have brought you a little new year's gift to help you forget an unpleasant experience with shining eyes and trembling fingers christine unwrapped the little box and raised the lid oh she gasped and relapsed into wondering silence the member of congress lifted a string of pearls from which hung a little ruby heart i brought it to you myself he whispered, leaning towards her, that I may put it on. May I? I thought the pearls were perfect, he continued as he fastened the clasp, but now I see them on your neck they look less pure by contrast. It was at this interesting juncture Mr. Marks elected to appear, his hair more rampantly erect than usual, and an unfortunate tendency to talk through his nose aggravated by cold in the head. He carried a large handkerchief with a red border, which he was obliged to use frequently, and was sublimely unconscious of the lack of cordiality in his welcome. After an interesting scrutiny of his rival for some minutes, Rivers departed, donning his overcoat in the contracted little hall with a strange mixture of sensations. The roost papers were safe in his pocket, and he was proved wrong in the theory he had advanced to Senator Byrd. It now only remained for him to restore them to their proper custodian and to put the Secret Service men in touch with Mr. Marks in order to recover the second lost paper. His course was perfectly clear, and the whole unfortunate affair seemed to be gradually drawing to a close. Yet, as he walked slowly down the street, Mr. Rivers had not the bearing of a man pleased with the world in general. Rather, he was lost in the mazes of Brown's study, which did not appear to afford him much gratification. Redman forced to resign, he said reflectively to his inner self. Forced to resign and out of the way. It is all plain sailing, and the White House one term nearer. The wind blew sharply around the corner, and took liberties with his hat. But he had a reason for turning down that particular street, and did so after a brief battle with the interfering elements. It was Mr. Rivers's custom to accomplish whatever object he had in view in spite of obstacles, so he mounted the steps of the octagon house, breathless but triumphant. Apparently his previous visit had but wetted his curiosity, for once again he explored the old rooms carefully, regardless of the dust which marked his immaculate coat-sleeve with unsightly streaks. The lower floor was indisputably empty. He therefore quietly ascended the curved stairway and explored the second and third floors. The caretaker's door was inhospitably shut, but as he lingered on the landing he heard a low, indistinguishable murmur, and a soothing, decided voice in reply. He also heard a clinking as of a spoon against a glass, and the unmistakable gurgle of water when poured from a jug. A chair was moved hastily, scraping noisily over bare boards, and the doorknob turned quietly instinctively the member of congress stepped into the adjoining room and partly closed the door in such a manner that he could command a view of the stairs and remain himself unseen he was conscious of a decided thrill of astonishment at the figure which presently passed within his range of vision instead of the typical janitor careworn and shabby he saw an immaculate old gentleman with shining silk hat and carefully buttoned black frock coat over pearl-gray trousers "'and a carnation in his buttonhole. "'Upon my word,' remarked Mr. Rivers aloud "'as he heard the front door close, "'it grows interesting. "'Advancing softly, he stood before the caretaker's room "'and gazed earnestly at the placard upon the door. "'As he stood there he heard a sigh from within. "'Long, slow, and filled with weariness, "'such a sigh as Christine Gray had described so graphically "'when she told him the story of her fright.' The member of Congress did not disdain to put his ear close to the door and listen intently. He did not fear the supernatural, and the actual was, as he said, interesting. The sigh was repeated, followed after a moment's silence by the low muttering he had previously heard. After a little hesitation, he knocked softly and, getting no response, turned the knob quietly. The room looked bare and comfortless enough as he entered with its few accessories for the convenience of its occupant. Moreover, it was quite empty. The uninvited guest looked curiously about, and sniffed the air thoughtfully, for the odor of kerosene was apparent, although no lamp was visible. It seemed to him to come from an adjoining closet, and he was about to follow it when his glance fell upon the rickety table, upon which a piece of tracing paper was carefully fastened with thumbtacks. With an exclamation of astonishment, he examined the incomplete drawing, intently following its details, and now and then giving vent to an astonished whistle. "'Water,' said a voice suddenly, thick and inarticulate. "'For God's sake, water!' River straightened himself abruptly, and felt a momentary regret that he was alone and unarmed. The sound undoubtedly came from behind the door he had supposed led into the closet, and whence now proceeded the low muttering he had heard from the landing, varied at intervals by a long sigh and the movement of a restless body, unmistakably human and evidently in pain. Wasting no time in speculation, he opened the door leading into the small inner room, and paused upon the threshold to reconnoitre. He saw a kerosene stove doing its odorous best to consume the surrounding oxygen, a broken chair on which were grouped a few bottles and glasses, and on the floor in the corner a narrow mattress upon which tossed and muttered a figure. "'Water!' it cried imperatively. "'I'm burning up, I tell you, water!' The Honorable Charles Rivers took a glass of water from the chair and advanced to the cot. Kneeling down upon the dusty boards, regardless of their effect upon his spotless trousers, he held the water to the hot, parched lips, and exhaustively studied the flushed face upon the pillow." Rising from his knees, he replaced the glass upon the chair and went into the caretaker's room with the manner of one who walks in his sleep. Involuntarily, he bent over the table and again examined the unfinished drawing. After a while, his hand sought his pocket and he produced the white envelope so recently escaped from Christine's upper drawer. He weighed it carefully, first in one hand, then in the other, advanced a few steps, hesitated, and advanced again his fingers tightening about the envelope. "'His daughter, Isabel,' murmured the figure on the floor, "'announces the engagement of his daughter, Isabel. "'Water. I want water.' The member of Congress again knelt beside the cot and put the glass to the fevered lips. He remained in this lowly position for some minutes, and when he rose had nothing in his hands except an empty glass." When he emerged from the octagon house, a little later, he walked with a preoccupied air of one absorbed in thought, and was even guilty of not returning the salutations of passing acquaintances. Upon reaching the club, he sat down beside a little table, and ordered a brandy and soda. And let it be stiff, he admonished the waiter. End of chapter 21